From Australian Book Review, this is the ABR Podcast, home to some of the magazine's finest reviews, interviews, poetry, fiction and commentary. My name is Amy Bailey and I'm the Deputy Editor of ABR. I'm also one of the judges of this year's ABR Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize. The Jolly Prize is worth a total of $12,500 and is open to authors writing in English around the world. This year, we received more than 1,300 entries from 36 different countries, a testament to ongoing international interest in the Jolly Prize and the magazine. Writers explored themes and topics including the pandemic, climate change, grief, desire, parenthood and community. After reading our way through these entries, the judges, author John Kinsella, Monash University academic Melinda Harvey and myself, long-listed 14 stories and then shortlisted three. A more detailed judges' report on the three shortlisted stories is available on our website, along with the details of the long-listed stories. In alphabetical order, here are the shortlisted stories for the 2022 Jolly Prize. Dog Park by Nina Cullen. Natural Wonder by Tracy Ellis. And Whale Fall by CJ Garrow. In this episode of the ABR podcast, we've asked the three shortlisted authors to read their stories in full. The stories also appear in our August issue, now on sale. We will announce the overall winner of the Jolly Prize at a special online event this Thursday, 11th of August at 6pm Melbourne time. This is a free event and all are welcome, but please register by emailing us, rsvp at australianbookreview.com.au. Announcing a new $10,000 award for a writer under 45 of social impact on business and society, the Bruce Piasecki and Andrea Masters Annual Award in Social Impact Writing. Topics can range anywhere in business and society. Non-fiction is preferred, but creative pieces are accepted. These can be books, articles, even the transcripts of podcasts of impact. To apply, please submit a two-page application by the end of August to awards at ahcgroup.com. Applications should include links to at least one of your publications and a statement on your plans for the next five years. For more information, contact awards at ahcgroup.com. Our first story is Dog Park by Nina Cullen. Nina Cullen is a Newcastle-based writer whose work has appeared in various Australian and international publications. She has just finished a collection of linked short stories and is working on a novel. Nina Cullen now reads... Dog Park. Hi, I'm Nina Cullen and this is my story Dog Park about territory, control and children's games. Georgie heads towards a bench in the shade. No prams or bags or snack boxes on it. No other parents looking for playground chit-chat. Max scuffs along a few metres behind her. He's waving a stick like a metal detector and mumbles to himself. Georgie sits down and waves for him to hurry up. She should have shelved it by now. You can't hurry, Max. He's always walked to the beat of his own drum, at his own pace. He stops for a moment to look at the sky and holds two hands up around his eyes like binoculars. He's looking. Maybe it's something, maybe it's nothing. Georgie whistles. He takes his hands down and comes over to her, sitting on the bench and pulling off his sandals. Not so fast, mister. She grabs an arm before he slips away. Sun cream. Okay. He holds his hands out for a squirt and gets to work on arms and legs while she deals with his neck and face. He's still going when she's done, 
rubbing in any leftover cream. More thorough than she is these days. Now can I go? Yes. Georgie leans her cheek out for a kiss and grabs him into a cuddle at the same time. He's soft, and if she catches the right place on his head, she swears it still smells like a baby. They both have pale skin and freckles and no business being in the midday sun, so their park visits are usually in the early morning or late afternoon. Fine by Georgie. It's just babies and toddlers at that time and tired parents who need to get out of the house. The kids toddle around Max but don't demand anything of him. They take a bucket or spade occasionally. The parents bend down and ask if it's okay and he nods. He's always been a generous kid. Sharing's never been the issue. Max crouches over the sand with his legs spread wide. Georgie stands up, ready to take him to the toilet block. He's never done a wee in the sandpit before, but he bends down lower and sand suddenly flying out from between his legs. Are you digging up a bone, Maxie? George sits back down. Arf, arf, he keeps digging. Found anything yet? Roll. He walks over to her on all fours with a sad dog face. Georgie leans in and gives him a scratch behind the ears. One of the mums looks over at them from the swings. Probably no bones here, Maxie. How about we build tunnels and castles instead? Woof! He shakes his bum in lieu of having a tail to wag. They play this doggy game at home. Sometimes she even gets down with him and they roll around on the floor with tickles and Max's gulped giggles. It started as a distraction from his screaming. When he didn't get something, he'd scream and hit. She spoke to him about using his words, but that didn't resonate. One day, he screamed in her face and she barked at him. He stopped and laughed and started barking too. Then, when he got angry, instead of yelling, he'd bark. She'd try not to smile when he stood there, with his arms crossed and brows ridged, barking like a dog. It got it out of his system. He'd turn from an angry pup back into her little boy and she'd go from growly top dog back to his loving mama. He'd come for a cuddle and they'd snuggle on the couch. She'd pet him, a little scratch behind the ear, a pat along the back, and he'd fetch something, a book to read or a toy. Okay, enough of the playful puppy game. That's one for at home. Georgie leans down to Max and brushes some hair out of his eyes. There are a few more families in the playground now, some of them with older children. Max leans back on his haunches, ready to howl. How about a cheese stick? Georgie quickly finds one in the snack bag and holds it out like a treat for a good boy. She pats the seat next to her and he sits down and grabs the snack. Yum! Georgie scruffles his hair. I think you're really a mouse. All the cheese you eat. Squeak! Max answers. He swings his legs and takes a sip from his drink bottle. Her beautiful boy. Sometimes, Georgie looks at him and thinks that her heart is going to burst. At pick-up time, everyone stands around, waiting like a crowd at the airport. She's not good at school gate small talk, so she's always a little off to the side. They're all there. Parents, dogs, younger siblings, grandparents and nannies, stretching a neck to see if their child is coming. She can't see him. And then he's there, and her heart bursts. He's carried by the crowd and jostled towards her by the bodies on either side of him. He's made smaller by a big bag and long shorts. But he's there. Max holds his hand out for more cheese. 
No, mister, have a bit of a play. We can have more later. His hand is still out. She tickles it and nods to the sand pit. Max gets down in the sand. Georgie packs his drink bottle back in her bag and fishes around for her phone. Max is at her feet on all fours again. What? 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 He has his angry face on. Georgie giggles and looks back at her phone. He barks again. She looks around the playground. A few of the kids are watching. Come on, Maxie, let's leave it for now. He sits on his haunches and holds his hands out. His pleading puppy is perfect. His eyes are big, head cocked to the side, wine drawn out long and loud. Two kids walk over. They're bigger than Max, older, probably brother and sister. They have the same dark hair and long faces. Okay, maybe some crackers. Georgie gets the snack box out of her bag, but it's too late. Yeah, boy. The girl smiles at her brother who whistles and holds his hand out. Max turns around and pants with a tongue hanging out. He's smiling and goes towards them. There's usually a rush of relief when Max finds other kids to play with. He's not generally part of the pack. Georgie sometimes worries that this precious child of hers isn't a great fit with the modern world. He has a big heart and a wild imagination. He's sensitive and dreamy and a total original. He'd sniff that and try to snuff it out. He's told her that he sometimes spends lunch in the library. She hopes it's because of his love of books rather than any lack of friends. Georgie doesn't like the girl's tone. She sits forward, alert, ready. She can't control what happens in the school playground or the classroom, but every other moment, outside those gates, she can be his mother. Max follows the kids out of the sandpit on all fours. What's your name? The girl squats down next to him and strokes his head. Max, he's even got a dog's name, the boy says. The two kids giggle and Max joins them. Georgie is ready to pounce. Want to play with us? Yeah. Max jumps up and follows them as they run off towards the slide. They climb up the slide, then take the stairs, then swing themselves up along railings before sliding down every time. They chase round and round and after each other in circles. The sister throws herself down the slide head first on her tummy, then head first on her back. Max hovers at the top of the slide. He lies down head first and then gets back into a normal position and pushes himself down. His shorts slow him to a stop and the other two pile up behind him. The brother pushes Max's back with his feet. They all get moving again and end up in a tangled heap at the bottom of the slide. Georgie stands up to see. There aren't any tears, just Max rolling around and laughing. She sits back down again but still leans forward to see them past the bushes. They come back to the sand pit but settle in at the far end from Georgie. I'm just getting my things. Max is breathless. You've made some new friends? Georgie puts his hat on and offers him a sip of water. He takes a quick gulp and nods. Then he runs back to them with his sand toys. The sister takes the bucket. The brother gets the spade and Max is left digging with a plastic crab. They build castles and knock them down, then run around the playground marking their territory. Max will sleep well tonight. On the weekends, Georgie has to plot in enough activities to tire him out. It's different with an only child. They won't just run around a garden on their own. Or the park. Well, Max won't. So she makes sure they go to the pool or get on their bikes or scooter up to the shops to drop off their library books. She thought clock watching was something only mothers with babies did, 
but here she is having a quick look at the time and hoping this might last for another 40 minutes. Mornings are what Georgie likes best. When Max crawls into her bed with three soft toys, he lifts her arm to position himself just right. They often fall back to sleep, tucked tightly into each other. She gives him warmth and comfort and security, and surely that goes some way to balance what she can't give him. On bad days, when other people make themselves feel worse by thinking about what they haven't done with their life or how ugly and unlovable they are, Georgie thinks about Max growing up. She thinks about lengthening limbs and a deepening voice, her beautiful boys replaced by an unrecognisable man, one who leans away from her hugs and kisses and doesn't need a soft pat to fall asleep. She has nightmares about this stranger in her house, this man's son, and when she wakes from them, she feels dirty and distressed. Every few minutes, Georgie looks up. The kids never settle for long, and there are five of them now. Two preschool girls have joined them. They run a few metres behind but catch up eventually, and no one seems to care too much. They're back at the slide, where a few toddlers climb the steps carefully and hold up the line. The oldest girl pushes forward. Somebody falls over and one of the toddlers starts to cry. By the time the parent arrives, the big kids are long gone. It's getting hotter now, and the bench is losing its shade, so Georgie moves along. She scans the playground perimeter, but can't see Max. She stands up. Dread spreads through her. She's suddenly cold. Max gone, on her watch. All her vigilance. All these years. All the precautions she's taken. The way she's lived with her body as a shield for him. All the decisions she's made on his behalf in the name of protection. All of that. And he disappears while playing in a park. She grabs her bag. Panic and tears combine as she calls his name. Max! She scans and stops. He's crouched low behind a bush. He has a finger up to his lips and Georgie sees the oldest boy leaning into a tree and counting with his eyes closed. It's gone. In the same instant that her life could have been taken, it's restored. She feels silly and looks down. She doesn't want to know if other parents are looking. Someone else has taken a seat in the shade, so she ends up on one of the rocks. It's not as comfortable, but has a better view of the whole playground. What? What? Max is on all fours again. He has a big puppy dog smile and rubs against the knee of the older girl. One of the preschoolers hands over a stick. She throws and points to it. Fetch! Go on, fetch! Fetch! The boy says. Fetch it! Fetch it! The girl starts a chorus and the preschoolers join in. Max happily crawls after it and comes back with the stick in his hand. He drops it at the feet of the older girl. Good dog, she says. The older boy comes back with a packet of crackers. He holds it out to his sister. She takes one and pushes it in the direction of the preschoolers. They take one each. Max stands up too. You have to beg for it, the girl says. Max gets back down and kneels with his hands held out in front of him. No, like a dog, paws. She holds her hands up, curled like two paws. Max copies and tilts his head to the side. Bro, he says. Good doggy. The girl gets down and scratches around his ears, then holds the packet out to him. Georgie is gripping the edge of the rock. She's about to go over, but the kids are all standing again, and Max is laughing and eating snacks with them, 
so she stays where she is. The girl disappears and comes back with a sarong. Georgie can't hear them, but Max is back on the ground. The preschoolers laugh while the older girl tucks the sarong into Max's T-shirt. It's rolled like a leash, and she gives them a bit of a push to get him moving. Enough! Georgie shouts it over the playground. She marches over to them. We're going! Max! Max stays where he is. Georgie pulls the sarong out from his T-shirt. It's time to go. We were just playing. The girl's shifted stance is concave and full of attitude. Georgie throws the sarong at her and holds a hand out. Now. Max, come now. We're going. I want to stay. Georgie bends down to pull him up. She can't. He's made himself heavy like a toddler. She used to grab for him to pick him up mid-tantrum, but she couldn't. He'd be loose-limbed and impossible to lift. I'm playing with my friends. Georgie crouches down and takes a deep breath. She and Max are eye to eye. Come on. Time to go. He doesn't move. The other kids stand above her in a line. The oldest girl is right by Max. Her brother is next to her. The little ones fall in on the left. Georgie is in their shadow. She looks at her little boy. Come on. Stay, Max, the girl says. She rests her hand on his head and he leans into her leg. Let's go. Now. Georgie holds a hand out. Max springs forward and snarls at her. His canines look more like fangs and Georgie falls back in the sand. The kids laugh and she hears Max's gulped giggle louder than all of them. The end. Thank you. The next story is Natural Wonder by Tracy Ellis. Tracy Ellis lives in Sydney and works as an editor in digital and print media. She has a master's in creative writing from UTS and was previously longlisted for ABR's Calibre Essay Prize. Here is Tracy Ellis. Hi there, I'm Tracy Ellis and this is Natural Wonder. In the stillness after the fireworks, I stood for a while at the window. The bay below was crammed with the pretty lights of marine craft and it looked as though you could step from one boat to another all the way across the harbour. Why don't I do that, I thought, and stayed there for some time, plotting my passage across the decks and bows. The next day was New Year's Day and I waited until quite late before taking the three kids down to a sheltered harbour beach. There was my son, Cosmo, aged 11, and his cousins, Ed, 10, and Elmo, 9. I watched as they swam, clambered over the rocks at one end and then the other, and marked out an imaginary ball game in the sand, miming moves and even arguing over the pretend rules and the pretend score. I had a headache and sat in the shade behind sunglasses, watching a large white boat just offshore caught by a stubborn anchor. It throttled back and forth, motoring in circles. When the skipper left the cabin to peer over the side, the boat drifted towards the beach. He hurried back and the engine gurgled to life, but the boat floundered in circles again. A man toweling himself off after his swim tried to strike up a conversation with me. Perhaps he thought I was alone. He reminded me that the beach is called Shark Beach, a name no one likes to use. A net strung from wooden pylons encloses the swimming area. 
The kids don't see their luck yet, spending summers like this. They don't see privilege or ponder reasons. Maybe Ed, the older cousin, does. I overheard him asking his father to explain the share market, and last night, with some solemnity, he asked me why time slows down when you travel into space, and whether, if you went far enough and fast enough, it would be possible to go back in time. I've been pondering this myself ever since. I was thinking about it again while watching their imaginary ball game and missed the moment when the snagged boat cut loose its anchor. I looked up as it motored off, a clump of seaweed swinging from the chain on the bow. It pulsed over the wake of another boat and evaporated in the setting sun. I'm hoping the cousins will come to stay for a few days like this every school holidays, if I can work it out with their father and grandmother. I send a text a few weeks before the end of each school term. Are the kids coming up? I know it's not my problem, and I shouldn't take it on like a cause, but when they were smaller and I watched my son wrestle with them like cubs, I imagined all three were mine and felt a primal urge to protect them even before anything happened. Elmo bumped his head yesterday. Crumpling in tears, he ran to be comforted. I was just out of the shower and he pressed his face into the towel around me and I held him, standing awkwardly in the hall. I was about to say, there, there, you'll be okay, and pull away, but thought I'd just hold him until he let go by himself. But he didn't let go. Have a lie down on my bed, I said, so I could at least get dressed. Then I stroked his hair and patted his back until his tears dried and he got up and went to play with his brother and cousin again. The older brother, Ed, lost a wiggly tooth on his first night here. He's probably too old to believe in the tooth fairy, given he can grasp the theory of relativity, but I washed it and put it in a dish beside the bed and swapped it for a coin as he slept. I can never quite bring myself to throw away baby teeth, so I put it in a little Ziploc bag, the tiny ones that drug dealers use. Not that I know any drug dealers. They say cocaine flows in the sewers around here. It makes a good story, but it's not the only story. Some of us just don't like to be too far from the sea. I forgot about the tooth in the Ziploc bag and opened my desk drawer in front of Ed the next day and he saw it. He said nothing. There was no accusation, no, you told me the tooth fairy took it. At what age do children start protecting adults, even lying for them? The boys don't mention their mother. No one does and it would be selfish of me to remind them just so I could comfort them. Why don't I do that? That's what I thought when I heard. Not the first thought. First there was no, followed by how. Not how did she do it, but how could she? Now there is just why. A question I don't like to get too close to for fear of finding the answer. I first met her when she was pregnant with Ed. She was very beautiful, prettily tattooed, enigmatic. She still looked like a child herself. I was a new mother and out of my depth, clutching my baby, frozen with anxiety. She spoke very little, so I asked all the questions in an incessant, insecure prattle. When she moved back to the country, taking the kids with her, I didn't ask or get involved. I tried not to speculate or gossip about the breakup. Even her own mother refused to take sides. There's his story, her story and the truth, she said, with that country pragmatism. It can be refreshing when no one else is talking and questions hang in the air like a fog. I called whenever we were passing through so that Cosmo could see his cousins. I have a photo of the last time, 
We met in the memorial gardens on a winter's day. She was dressed in a long tweed coat with a black scarf, jeans and converse sneakers, a vintage hand-tooled leather bag over her shoulder. There was no clue. The boys stayed for three days and on the last night it was stiflingly hot, so after dinner we went down to the harbour again to sit by the water. It was getting dark already, but they waded in the shallows and fenced on the sand with their toy lightsabers. They wanted to swim out to the pontoon, but I said no. Cosmo says I take the fun out of everything, but I know they can't resist a challenge and would dare each other to swim under it or dive down until they touch the slimy mud on the harbour floor, the same things I did at their age. I let them walk around the boardwalk instead. The tide was low, leaving a long drop to the harbour. Christmas king tides. There's a railing on the harbour side, but not the pool side, and I worried about Elmo, still not convinced he can swim properly. When I'd mentioned this to his father, he looked bewildered. Right, he said, considering the implications, like it was all a bit overwhelming for him, which it probably was. Cosmo's lightsaber flashed on and off as he swung it around. When I couldn't see them on the far side of the boardwalk, I could still track the red light flashing occasionally. Their three black shadows disappeared, then reappeared as a manly ferry, that hardy maritime vessel passed in the distance behind them, framing their silhouettes in the blocks of gold light from its warm interior. They slowly made their way the length of the horseshoe boardwalk. When they got to the ramp on the sand at the other end, Elmo ran, shouting, I dropped my lightsaber! Elmo's lightsaber was blue and didn't light up like Cosmo's. Its telescopic plastic tubes collapsed into a hollow handle and I imagined it had sunk straight to the bottom. Did you drop it in the pool or outside in the harbour? I asked. Outside, he said, his voice a husky baby animal growl. Mum gave it to him, said Ed. We walked across the beach to the boardwalk. The sand was soft and starting to cool. The boards on the deck felt dry underfoot and worn smooth. There it is, said Cosmo, racing ahead. The four of us leant over the railing to see the toy, a plastic crucifix floating majestically, shimming and swaying on the rippled mirror, halfway between us and a clinking moored yacht. I considered swimming out to get it, but the spectre of the man with the towel whispered, Shark Beach, Shark Beach. I looked for an oar or for some movement out there on the water to help. Up on the sand, under the Morton Bay figs, there were a dozen dinghies and kayaks, all padlocked to the fence or to each other, useless. We watched the toy drift further away, and I told Elmo we'd come back and look for it in the morning. I explained there was a chance it would wash up on shore if the tide came in and the southerly held off. It sounded like a hollow promise, and I don't think he believed me. But he accepted it like he was used to hollow promises, to being kept in the dark. By dawn the next day there'd been no change in the weather, not even a breeze, so I was hopeful. It was worth looking at least. But first I had to pick up the boy's grandmother from the station. I left them sleeping, flung across the sheets. She'd spent all night on the train to come and take them home. I lifted her small suitcase into the boot and we drove back through the still, almost deserted streets. It would have been a good time to ask her how she was, but I made small talk instead. I'd written to her when it happened, but she'd never mentioned my letter. 
Only immediate family were allowed at the funeral. Her daughter's friends had to pay their respects in a separate gathering in the park. If she died any other way, it would have been a public tragedy, not a private one. The boys greeted their grandmother with hugs. I turned the portable fan up high, plumped the pillows on the couch and made her a cup of tea, then said to Elmo, Shall we go see if we can find your lightsaber? The sun was high now. It was searingly hot and the beach was crowded. We walked the length of the boardwalk and scoured the water's edge back on shore. Elmo's small feet stamped perfect footprints into the sand ahead. When he stopped to look back and make sure I was still there, I glimpsed his mother's face under the peak of his cap, with its splash of freckles and thick black eyelashes. We walked all the way to where the sand ended in oyster-covered rocks at the foot of the seawall and searched the crevices and shallows until the beating sun wore us down and it was hard to find an excuse to continue. I'd kept my promise to him and I could see he'd accepted his loss, so we made our way back. As soon as we stopped looking, it appeared. We were climbing the concrete stairs to the car park. I glanced to the right and there it was, lying on the grass, found and then discarded by another child. Elmo, I said, is that it? His eyes widened. I hardly believed it myself. Only the tide can bring things back. It was clogged with sand and grit, but once we were back home, I flushed it under the tap in the bath as if it were Excalibur and the Lady of the Lake had risen in a halo of phosphorescence from the dark harbour to return it. When the moving parts worked again, I collapsed it down and packed it into a suitcase. In the lounge room, I heard Ed asking his grandmother the same question he'd asked me about space travel and whether you could go back in time. Well, it's natural to wonder about these things, she said, but even if you could go back, I don't know if you could change anything. It was just Cosmo and I again that evening, and it was quiet. When he'd gone to sleep, I turned off the lights in the lounge room and stood at the window. The boats had all gone from the bay. There was no twinkling raft left across. The next story is Whalefall by C.J. Garrow. C.J. Garrow is a Melbourne writer whose fiction has been shortlisted for various international prizes. His story, Egg Timer, was shortlisted in the 2020 Jolly Prize. C.J. Garrow Whale Fall by C.J. Garrow A video in the museum foyer chronicles the dismantling of a rotting whale that had beached itself on a nearby coast. The machinery hauling away its distended remains and the workers standing knee-deep in the guts of the creature arrest my attention. For the longest time, I thought the death of a whale one of the saddest things imaginable. My teacher, Mr. Maurice, schooled me otherwise. What's worse than death is death without purpose. Most whales don't die on sand, but in open water. As the carcass descends, sharks savage its soft hide and spill a fecund chaos that will nourish sea creatures for a century. This harassment was Mr. Maurice's lesson. For months, the mobile scavengers gorge themselves on this flesh with the relish of a child who has happened upon a forbidden idea thinking themselves the first in history to have encountered such an abundant resource, even countenancing the possibility that this might see them right for life, the shark, or make the older boys laugh, me, neither of us realising that as we tear chunks from the descending whale, we send tiny, scuffed, 
and unhonoured remnants travelling ever upward, nourishing strata we will never meet, plankton and other forms of ocean lint. While the slurry of nutrients cascading towards the ocean floor equally invites creatures to burrow into whale marrow and flesh, and we're not done yet, grinned Mr Maurice. At the same time, bacteria feast on the viscera, and in turn vomit up hundreds of years of dinner for clams and snails, the meals kept refrigerated by the plummeting temperatures. Like the Titanic, those that fall into deep waters are doomed to preservation, he said. And so as generations of land dwellers rise and crumble, this single whale slowly passes through the ocean's twilight realms towards the midnight zones, where frankly obscene bottom feeders who have never seen light will still suck sustenance from the sinking hulk. It justifies a death. Mine was a small school for boys of shallow prospects. The buildings were in a state of protracted collapse, rendered invisible to the outside world, by the many evergreens in whose shadows they cowered. The branches hiding the sagging tiles kept the grounds in a perpetual dusk, so that even at the height of summer the earth remained damp underfoot, and the air was bereft of the sunny screams of cicadas looking to mate. Whether due to their own diminished fortunes or a more pragmatic impulse not to foster disappointment, the teachers of the school had developed subtle, ongoing methods by which to discourage their students from gazing too long at the horizon. A particular set of the mouth, or slow slump, were enough to rein in our enthusiasms, bridle our glee. The nasal whistle of a sigh could cut across a classroom as sharply as whipped leather. Mr Maurice was the exception. He strode the yard with the swagger of a seagull on a concourse, his grey eyes forever ensnared by some distant phantom invisible to the rest of us. This seeming state of distraction was misleading. He remained attuned to his environment, as though his true apprehension of the world was through sound, or even scent. He commanded a general schoolyard respect that caused other teachers to bristle, their envy further compounded by the self-disgust familiar to any adult who seeks validation from children. But Mr Maurice was liked by all of us, even the older boys. We knew what the older boys wanted because knowing that is everyone's full-time job. You had to stay alert to their intentions, or you might find yourself press-ganged into some horror show, often involving the various humiliations of Bernard Tusk, his toilet-dunking, de-underwearing, eyebrow-shaving, on account of how Bernard Tusk's pale and soft features and general B.O. collaborated against him. Tristan was the first to tell the older boys about Bernard's stink. We watched them descend like raptors. What came next was normal. To be expected, you could say, though nobody ever said so out loud. Not in my experience, which is limited, or was limited, when into my view first lurched the chalky frame of Bernard Tusk, who wore his quivering smile like a warding spell, so that it was immediately obvious that he had been routinely belittled. His arrival was accompanied by all kinds of rumours. His account of both the country and the condition in which he was raised varied according to which kid you asked which cemented an attitude of mistrust among the older boys, who were forever seeking wall cracks and chinked armour. We laughed when they made jokes, not because we got the joke, and if you did, it was really funny-funny, but because we had learnt to recognise the shape of the jokes they told, in which everyone played their role, so that even the least among us had some importance. They, the older boys, would get pretend angry if we didn't laugh. Not that they were upset, it was just another aspect of the ritual. 
we never understood why someone would want to pretend to be angry, but the older boys were big into that. They'd flex abruptly, about to smash you, but you knew it was merely performance, or lesson. We didn't blame them for their brutality. They were siege engines, for sure, but propelled by someone else's grievances. On YouTube, we once saw a group of older boys smashing chairs on each other's backs. We had teachers who lectured us about ocean breathing, and we liked Cosmic Kids yoga, but our thoughts always returned to the boys bashing and breaking those beige plastic seats across their friends' spines. To some of us, the video felt like porn. The boys were shirtless and there was swearing, but they were doughy and pale, like Bernard, whereas both the fighters and porn stars we were used to ingesting were tanned and brawny. Mostly it felt like a coded message from the future. I am a boy, it must also be said, and older now, which is important. I know that a person can be permanently extinguished. I should have paid better attention to Bernard Tusk and the circumstances of his extinction. No clothing suited him. His bones were coat hangers at best. His lanky gait, all shoulders and elbows, I knew would attract attention. Got dressed in the dark, an older boy would gesture at the two large shorts held like bunched curtains by a strip of vinyl, or the shirt whose not-quite-right hue gave away its thrift-shop provenance. The boy would poke Bernard's ribs, hard, after a colleague had dropped to all fours behind the poor victim's knees. Both would end up caked with the rich hummus that carpeted the yard, but the humiliation only stuck to Tusk. I should note that we weren't exactly afraid of the older boys, or afraid that we might suffer Tusk's fate. Fear implies a knowledge we simply didn't possess. I'd never felt real fear, or couldn't remember having done so. This I can say then, I'd never felt the kind of fear you can't forget. I'd been scared a few times, but that amounted to loose change, nothing that would buy you couch time as an adult. While it stood to reason that I might die, on a conceptual level, it seemed at the same level of probability as time travel, which was also worth pondering. We just weren't afraid of anything as trivial as death, I suppose. I'd seen two goldfish ascend, and I'd scratched my itchy grey-suited bum while Grandpa Jay's coffin trundled down the conveyor belt. But nobody important vanished from our lives for good. Real people went missing all the time, like how Lincoln from Pet B moved to Toowoomba for a bit, or how my best friend Jenna from Kinder moved to New Zealand because her dad was rich from technology, and New Zealand was the safest place to build a hole in the ground, like in the Hobbit movies, except this was in case of the end of the world. We did a FaceTime where she was in a kayak. Nobody really went away forever, is what I'm saying. There is a form of psychic annihilation, though, that feeds those around it. One carcass can provide sustenance for all kinds of beings. Like most of us, Bernard Tusk sought the secret signs and gestures that would render him cool. None of us were burdened by the horrible understanding that coolness shared similarities to equally nebulous concepts such as honour or grace in that other people decide whether or not you have it. Bernard's efforts to effect a casual nonchalance had been doomed from the moment the older boys had marked him out as deeply uncool, contagiously uncool, a verdict that brought with it that other quality decided not by an individual, but a community, which is shame. He should have seen where things were headed, with his thin shoulders and all that leaky kindness. Once the demonisation of Bernard Tusk had spread beyond isolated instances of name-calling and private torture, once species other than the dreaded older boys had begun darting in to tear off shreds of their own. A near-permanent transformation could be observed in his body. He would walk the halls, pre-flushed, 
red-faced before anyone had yet had a chance to remind him of the slow social dismemberment he was experiencing. Bernard's crimson tint galvanised us as a community. Petty differences persisted, but the perpetual sundown that blushed his cheeks gave us all something to pity and revile. I remember clambering up into the peppercorn tree one musty afternoon and spotting the tiny, comma-like figure crossing the parched soccer oval, trailing what seemed like the entire student body, like dust rising behind a far-off desert vehicle. We should categorically rule out any personal failing on Bernard's part when it came to his distinctive odour. During his mother's childhood, the punishment of choice had involved shoving the fully clothed defender under a cold shower, instilling a lifelong aversion to bathrooms. His father, meanwhile, felt the smell of human sweat was evidence of a day fully lived. Bernard had no idea that he was a type, a dirty kid, until a well-meaning teacher directed him home before classes even began, with a letter to his parents instructing them to bathe him before his return. Though Tristan was the direct instigator, how the older boys caught wind of this deviation from the day's routine was beside the point. The predation would have occurred regardless. Only its object was determined in this moment. Older boys were merely the most visible flesh-eaters in a complex ecology of interdependence and symbiosis whose digestive processes could take years, even decades, to fully play out. It might seem as though all of this is injustice of the highest order because you have been blessed with the moral sense to recognise such inhumanity but perhaps you are no more responsible for your ethical uprightness than is a shark for its endlessly regrowing teeth. It is terribly well suited to its environment, this eating machine, but I don't assume it had much choice in the matter. You may not be the architect of your own finely tuned sense of right and wrong either, in which case your moral luck, as it were, is equalled by the moral luck of the older boys, who were simply born into different circumstances. We can only hope this is not the case. I don't blame the older boys for the blow that ultimately penetrated Tusk's heart any more than I blame myself. In a gloomy, locker-lined corridor, the older boys had formed a tight ring, with Tusk and myself thrust into its centre. With shoves and kicks they howled at us to fight one another, warning of what would come if we failed to comply. I had never thrown a punch in my life, had no desire to, but it was plain to see that Bernard Tusk was even more harrowed by the prospect. He was emitting a noise, no words, his voice a fierce alarm growing higher and higher, like a melody that could ascend forever. It strikes me now that being the object of assault was something he could weather, but being forced to inflict suffering on another was a kind of moral injury, a bruising of the soul itself. Instead of raining fists on each other, I called Tusk an idiot. He replied that I was the idiot, and I reached for the nearest retort hardly thinking. Some words lodge themselves in your brain like parasites. Even the most popular of us had been called something. We'd been gross, fat, stupid, weird. Those leeches will still be feeding years on, though it's possible to tear the bloodsuckers out with enough effort. You try to think of another way of thinking, and sometimes discover there's a modicum of pride available in slurs. Some people are disgusting on purpose. Thick and chunky got hot. Acting stupid can be a career move, and weird people are only weird because they love something a lot, which they know is better than the alternative. As I threw my insult at Tusk, his eyebrows twisted not in horror, but in comprehension, lightning striking the ocean. Oh, those eyebrows announced, 
I am ugly. Say it out loud. Even the word feels ugly in your mouth. Of course, nobody could ever seriously accuse Bernard Tusk of being ugly. The creaturely innocence of his blinking gaze and the thinness of his hide lent him a natural prettiness. But Tusk now understood his place in a system and the reason for his torment. He was wrong about his ugliness, but it afforded him a lever with which to pry open the entire complex machine of which he was merely one component. It was the day of the sports carnival. Parents were screaming. Hats and sunscreen and even umbrellas were stuffed into backpacks. Teachers interrogated about water bottle refill zones, and we gathered it was going to be a scorcher. Many of us heard the word heatstroke for the first time. It was noted. With his long lashes and his kindness, we figured Bernard Tusk was not prepared for sports day. We had all been hardened by the quiet fears engendered by older boys, the way soft ferns left in corners accrue a stiff dust. That day, however, we were all rattled by the sight of Bernard Tusk as he took off running. No events had begun, no starter gun fired, yet he was sprinting as those chased by demons. He raced around the track past children barely out of nappies and older boys who could break him over their knee. His gait was as awkward and ungainly as ever, but for the first time it persisted. Teachers tutted and eventually yelled. Lit further aflame by his exertions, he evaded their grasp, panting in his protests. From the bleachers this pantomime left the entire school in hysterics. Mrs. D'Souza's sandals threw up tiny mushroom clouds as she stormed across the long jump sand and tried to catch hold of Bernard's passing elbow. He wove away at the last minute and the waiting athletes hooted. He just kept running, was the thing, past triple jump and relay. Hatless and bare-limbed, his sad shape clowned out for what seemed like hours. Teachers swore in our vicinity. Nobody could withstand the day's rays for so long. The comedy grew stale. His skin took on the sheen of grilled meat. Still he fled, cavorting for the stand's approval. I ran to Mr. Maurice. As sports teacher, he felt the most responsible here. What's doing, jabroni? he asked. I was too winded to speak at first, but pointed at the pink demon reeling across the landscape. The grey eyes took in the faraway scene. He inhaled. Bernard Tusk isn't doing himself any favours, he said. His fingers plucked Scroggan from his bum bag. But you're not doing yourself any favours either. I licked salt from my lips. Some of you older boys want to be getting in there. Reach him. Teach him what's what. Doesn't look good for any of us, this kind of thing. Teachers at other schools will be roasting me for years to come. When the day ended, Tusk had been so burned by the sun, so deliberately scorched, that we marvelled as he pulled strips of skin from his arms and neck and dangled them in our faces. He was so violently red, we felt sick from it, enriched by it. I want to note that I ran into Bernard Tusk a few years ago. Their zebra crossing was slick with rain, and as my feet skidded, I looked up from my phone, panicked, only to find strong hands catching me from behind and preventing my fall. Before I could apologise, the grown Bernard Tusk, now bear-like in aspect, simply lumbered off into the downpour. Or I could report the time we met eyes along a bar, two clapped-out souls waiting for someone's attention, both aware we were too old and looked too poorly to command it. We exchanged an understanding. Those days were behind us. If we run into each other now, we just... pretend? 
one of us signaled. That none of it happened? I'd respect that. The other would nod. Or I could tell you of the news report about Bernard Tusk, the international peacekeeper, airlifting aid to beleaguered lands. Or Bernard Tusk, the biologist, whose sacrifices saved untold lives. Or even Bernard Tusk, the lottery winner, fortune, finally throwing him a bone. I want to say any of this happened, but the brutal demands of daily life prevent that kind of lie, and I am afraid of becoming an older boy. The only reason I've thought of him in the last however many years is that I noticed on social media that his funeral was being live-streamed. He died in a foreign war. I was tempted to log in, but don't need to know more about what remains, or who would turn up to the event, or what last nourishment was left for them. For all I know, Bernard Tusk remains skinless, pecked at. I slide that day back into its straw. I did run into Mr Maurice, however. Arriving at the museum, I hurried past the video of the whale, only to collide with my former teacher. Though his face had been ravaged by the years, I instantly recognised the grey eyes I had torn from the screen. Over the succeeding awkward minutes, we ricocheted across various moments, none shared. My mind went to Bernard Tusk, whose recent death had hit me like a rail spike. Mr Maurice confessed that the name didn't ring a bell. The sports carnival? I said. He blinked patiently and listened to my description of that day with a faint smile. No recollection, he said. We had a boy like that in my year, though. In my experience, every school has one. What a clown act. Good for a laugh, those sorts. Bernard got all blown up, I stammered. He shook his head. I'll bet you this trust character landed on his feet, he said. Survive school and you can survive anything. His eyes were distant, but his teeth were bare. Thank you for listening to this special Jolly Prize-themed episode of the ABR podcast. We would like to thank the judges and all those who entered the Jolly Prize. And we congratulate all the long-listed and short-listed authors. We also warmly acknowledge the generous support of ABR patron Ian Dixon AM, who makes the Jolly Prize possible in this lucrative form. The Jolly Prize will return next year. In the meantime, please visit our website for the details of the other 11 long-listed stories and to read the short-listed stories. Entries are also currently open for the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.